the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This program was recorded for broadcast at this time. Welcome to the Roger Franklin Williams Show, a program that's dedicated to protecting, preserving, and defending America's founding traditions of God, family, country. Presented by Christner's Prime Steak and Lobster. Friends, we have a great show for you today. I want to thank you for the opportunity to join you. In addition to, of course, being now solidly into the Christmas holiday season, we also um, had a major historical event over the past week in America as well. Of course, that was the anniversary of the attacks, the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor, which of course initiated the entrance of the United States of America into World War II. Also, in terms of sports, it was another historic event. Uh, The Army-Navy football game was played yesterday, um, and of course that's a series that goes over 100 years we have a man who was a, not only has a background locally uh, as a graduate of Apopka High School and former All-State Apopka quarterback, also a member of the Army West Point Hall of Fame, and was a central figure in the historic 1977 Army victory over Navy. Of course, I'm speaking about former United States Army officer Lehman Hall, also member of the Army West Point Hall of Fame for his record-setting career as the Army quarterback from 1974 to 1977, where he set over 30, set 33 records for total offense, uh, single ga- and and passing, single game, single season, and career. Now let's go to our today's conversation with Army West Point Hall of Fame quarterback Lehman Hall. Uh, Lehman, it's great to catch up with you, and thank you for joining us on this special weekend. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you inviting me. You know, and and first of all, let me start by by thanking you for your service to defend our freedom and our security, and defend my freedom and my security, and and a law and you know in your service as a United States Army officer. And of course, I'm, you heard me mention, uh, and as you know, this was the uh, another anniversary for the of the Pearl Harbor attacks, December seventh, nineteen forty one. Uh, you know, as speaking as an Army officer and a graduate of West Point, uh, can you share the thoughts that you have about about Pearl Harbor and and you know, why it's important for us to continue to remember that 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 tra- sad tragic day and the events afterwards? Yes, uh, thank you for that question. I I think back, um, you know, even going back to my high school days and learning a little bit about world history and the bombing of Pearl Harbor and, and, and what it meant. And I think as a kid, as a teenager, I didn't really get a full grasp of it uh, actually until I visited uh, Pearl Harbor um, in my senior year of college. I was playing in the Hula Bowl out there, and it really brought home the events of that day when you see the uh, some of the ship's masts that are barely sticking out of the water, and you see all of the um, memorials and uh, and just how tragic it was and, and what a blow it was to our country and how close we came to um, not being able to defend ourselves, uh, you know, having most of the fleet blown out of the water. And, you know, I think luck and God was on our side. Um, and, you know, we pulled through it. And then, of course, um, 
I think most most people listening today uh, remember very vividly the, the attack on 9-11. And it was a very similar attack on our homeland uh, by surprise, a cowardly attack. And uh, I think everyone knows how that helped bring our country together. And, and I think that's the most important thing is when we remember those days, it really makes all the uh, you, you know, small things in our life even smaller when we realize just how important our freedom is and our ability to protect ourselves and particularly how our military is able to uh, be strong enough to react and and defend. No, thank you for sharing, sharing your thoughts about Pearl Harbor and, um, and then just, yeah, the importance of, our, of the United States military to our existence. But right now, I'd like to just ask you about this year's game. And I also want to give a heads up to our producer, Jeff. Jeff, let's just go straight through. We'll just go straight through for about 20 or 25 minutes without taking that break. But, um, you know, can, can you share a little bit about uh, about this year's game and, and also, um, you know, your, your thoughts on the, the season that Army has had to this point? Yeah, th- thank you for that question. Um, our season this year has been somewhat disappointing because uh, we lost some games that, that uh, we, we never should have lost. Uh, we lost to a, a one double a team. Uh, we lost to a couple other games where we were favored. Uh, we, we had one game where uh, our quarterback was injured and he was out. Um, some people may know that army decided to go in, in a little bit of a different direction from last year where, we last year we ran a, a pretty much a true uh, wishbone or, or broken bone, you know, option offense. This year we hired a new athletic director or not athletic director. I'm sorry, uh, offensive coordinator, and and um, put the quarterback in a um, position behind the center, a shotgun, and pretty much running the same type of offense. Um, but I think what I saw over the year was a a lack of creativity in the offense. And, you know, we were running right, we were running left and then punting, but something happened, um, at the air force game. And, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, our head coach took it to heart that, uh, the season wasn't going as well as was expected and that some things had to change. And it was a totally different Army game, Army team at, at Air Force. I mean, we, we were doing so many different things in our attack. You know, we were getting outside. We were doing cross bucks, misdirection, throwing it when you wouldn't expect it, uh, doing a reverse. I mean, the ball was all over the field. And, and we beat Air Force pretty convincingly. And... Um, I think um, what you're going to see in this Navy game is is a, probably a combination of what Army did last year under center, uh, as well as some some uh, shotgun, uh, and you know this game um, this game would put a, a win would put Army at six and six. But we would still not be bowl eligible because we played two one double A teams. You're only allowed to play one, or or one of them, only one of them can count as a win uh, in order to become bowl eligible. So we even if we win, we can't go to a bowl game. But I can't tell you what a great season it would turn out to be uh, at six and six and beating Air Force and Navy. So. All the chips are on the table. We're all in for, for beating Navy. And, and I think what will be really great for, for us and what's riding on this game is it would knock Navy out of bowl contention. Uh, so they would, they would not become bowl eligible. And then we uh, beat an Air Force team when they were ranked 25 in the country, uh, and they were undefeated. So we, we kind of uh, made our mark in those two games, and we expect it to continue tomorrow. No, really, thank you for setting the stage for what uh, should be and proves to be a very exciting 
uh, Army Navy contest game, especially and even in the in the context of the entire series. And two things that just came to mind as you were sharing you know, about that, I, I suspect, strongly suspect that capturing a Commander's Cup would be better than any bowl game uh, you know, Army could go to. And then, and then also, I, that's this kind of scenario has played itself out, um, you know, many times over the 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 hundred plus year rivalry, and that oftentimes the underdog team uh, captures a victory, and and oftentimes it, it you know that somewhat ruins the season for the other side, if I'm not mistaken. Near the end of of, of Colonel Red Blake's uh, career at Army in the in the fifties, uh, one of his undefeated seasons was was ruined by Navy in a year they were around five hundred or something. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 talk about tremendous incentive. Uh, it, it's there, which of course will make for help to make for an, ex, an incredibly exciting game. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, all the records are off the table. You can forget about them coming into Army Navy. Any anything can happen. Uh, and, and I think the team that is able to, um, you know, to withstand any big momentum shift and, and neutralize that momentum shift is the team that's going to win. So I think being, being resilient in this game is going to be uh, extremely important. Friends, hope you enjoyed today's program and our conversation with Army West Point Hall of Famer Neiman Hall. We'll be right back on the Roger Franklin Williams Show. Please stay with us. back to the Roger Franklin Williams Show. It's great to be with you today. Hope your Christmas season is getting off to a wonderful start and hope that you'll have a wonderful, joyous Christmas holiday season. Of course, it's also we're in Hanukkah is being celebrated now as well for our Jewish friends. We want to wish everybody a happy Hanukkah also, and hopefully that'll be a joyous, happy season. Hope you're enjoying our conversation with Lehman Hall one of the outstanding players in the history of Army West Point football. He's in the Army West Point Hall of Fame during his career as the starting quarterback from 1974 to 1977. He established 33 records for offense, total offense, passing, single season, single game, and career. And, of course, he led Army to one of their his most historic victories in the Army-Navy series and 17-14 to 14 victory over Navy in 1977. Before we go back to Lehman Hall, I want to give you this word from our friends over at Apopka Moore and Equipment Repair. And of course, as you've come to know, Apopka Moore and Equipment Repair is our one-stop headquarters for all of our lawn and garden needs. Well, right now, during Christmas season, they're our one-stop headquarters for wonderful Christmas gifts, especially for the guy on your Christmas shopping list. Of course, Apopka Moore is where they have the best products in the outdoor power t- equipment industry and the best lawnmowers in the business. Get up and see Mike and all the great guys at Apopka Moore and Equipment Repair. And you can go there on the north side of Apopka on Highway 441 at the intersection of Plymouth Sereno Road. And you can always find them at apopkamower.com. That's apopkamower.com. Apopka Mower and Equipment Repair. It's where they sell the best and they fix the rest. Now let's go back to our conversation with Army West Point Hall of Famer, Lehman Hall. Of course, during his four-year career as quarterback in Army, he left school as the holder of 33 different records in terms of total offense and passing records, single season, single game, and career. Also led the Black Knights to a 17-14 victory over Navy his senior year in the 1977 Army Navy game a season in which Army went seven and four. He's also, of course, a former All State quarterback for the Apopka Blue Darters. And now, Lima, I'd like to go back to your career because you know, as even as I was just thinking about it, um, preparing for this show, uh, you know, it 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 really um, you know hit me and really realized that you know the four years you you were at Army were 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 a significant era 
in Army West Point football, and you know, what I mean by that is kind of what I mentioned earlier, like the year before you entered school, Army was 0-11, lost to Navy 51 to nothing. i got to think that's probably the worst season Army ever had. And, um, you know, and here you are by the time you're a senior, you're graduating, Army's 7-4 and and beats Navy. And a, you know, a big part of that, in addition, of course, to, to the impact that you made as the quarterback, was the head coach, Coach Homer Smith, and who also later became your father-in-law. But Homer Smith not only had an impactful career at Army, he had an impactful career both as a head coach and an assistant coach, offensive coordinator, uh, in college football during his era. Can you just talk about the impact of Coach Homer Smith? Well, uh, words can't describe how I feel about uh, Homer. Uh, You know, like you say, he's also been my father-in-law, so... I think I am probably the only man walking this earth that has had the privilege of seeing him and working with him as a player and then as a son-in-law and, um, you know, and as a son-in-law really getting to uh, even see more greatness in him. I mean, he's by far one of the greatest men that I've, come in contact with in my life. Um, I mean, first of all, you're talking about a man who uh, w- was magna cum laude at Princeton. Um, he got his MBA at Stanford while he was an assistant coach and uh, later got his uh, um, master's in divinity at Harvard. So an extremely erudite man um, and, you know, and I think he took that smart to football. I mean, most football coaches and everyone knew him as being, you know, just a little bit, uh, you know, having some quirks about him because he was so smart. But uh, in, I think the thing that was most amazing about him, and, you know, and, and I tried to live this out in my life, and, you know, in my coaching and, and how I um, might teach anyone is he was a great teacher. And he taught by, um, by showing. Um, there, were, there were times, I mean, there, there's so many times that I could describe how, how he would use certain things to teach. But, you know, one example that I'll give you is uh, when he was, uh, offensive coordinator out at UCLA. He was there for like 12 years. He wanted to get across the idea of precision in in the offense, how precise the handoff had to be, how precise uh, the routes that the receivers run have to be. There's no error or no room for error in, in anything you do. Everything was precise. So what he did is he brought in an, an operating room uh, team nurse, nur- a, a couple nurses and a doctor. He had them back behind the curtains during an offensive team meeting. He opened up the curtains after he had introduced the subject and said, "This is precision." So then the doctor, you, you know, would pretend like he's operating and, uh, uh, you know, ask for a scaffold and how the scaffold was put into the doctor's hand. He would explain it. Uh, but that's what he was about, and he, he did that on numerous occasions to really um, force you to visualize what precision is, and uh, uh, it was just a great teaching environment that, that he would provide. And, and the other thing that I would say about him is he, he was a guy who could uh, kind of chew you out, if you will, and make you feel good about it. He, he was always very positive. Uh, he, he always saw the best in everyone, particularly players. He always felt that every player had the right to be their best and to be given opportunities to show their best. Um, so I can't, I can't say enough about him. I miss him every day. Uh, sometimes when I'm making decisions and thinking about things, I will, I will reflect on what he might what, what words of wisdom he might give me in that situation. 
Thank you for for those great insights into Coach Homer Smith. And I'll add too, and this is just off the top of my head. I don't have his you know, his entire you know, bio or in front of me. But in addition to being the the head coach and the, the success he had at at Army, he was also the head coach at Davidson, and they had some really explosive offenses there during that time. And then he was also the offensive coordinator at Alabama later in his career, and also the offensive coordinator at UCLA. Um, and and it, and it was well known as, as a, one of the true uh, offensive minds in college football during that era, and 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 kind of just picking up from what you said. And guys, you're listening to talking old school. We're speaking with Army West Point Hall of Fame quarterback Lehman Hall as we talk about the this year's 2023 Army Navy game and other topics as well. You know, I one of the things as you'd share with us before was when you entered West Point, they under the direction of, of coach Homer Smith, uh, army was running the wishbone offense and, you know, but in, and you know, um, you know, a, a lot of coaches, you know, a, a, a pass oriented quarterback like Lehman Hall might've never gotten really an opportunity, but you know, if, you know, from my, you know, very, pers- from my perspective, you know, miles away, it, it looks like he obviously recognized the, the unique talents that you had and, and, and eventually ended up, you know, crafting the, the, the offense to suit your skills. Um, and of course we see the results of how, what that turned out, um, a record setting career and a winning season and a victory over Navy. But, but, but in along those lines, can you also talk about, you told us a very interesting story about your freshman year at West Point and, and how you, you did, you know, get some attention, even though they're running a wishbone offense and you, you begin to you know, earn your way on the field in a very interesting way. Um, can you, can you address those topics? Yes, uh, sure. I, I was the third team quarterback, and there were two quarterbacks in front of me who uh, really came from different positions. One of them was a wide receiver. One of them was a, a defensive back. But both of them were two of the best athletes on the team. But one thing that was very clear is they weren't very good at throwing the ball. Homer told me one day that you know when he first came to the West Point, he had them standing you know fifteen yards apart. And, and they couldn't play catch with each other without a ball <laughs> falling on the ground. So, so we got into some games. I mean, we were really pretty, pretty good uh, in the wishbone. And, and, you know, we, we played some very tough teams, uh, almost beat Penn State my freshman year. Uh, but there would come times where we needed to throw the ball and just absolutely couldn't. So, um, you know, I didn't get a many. I didn't get that many reps as a wishbone quarterback, but I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, with the defensive backs. And uh, you know, the coaches would have me throw balls to receivers uh, in defensive practice drills, and they would really get upset with me sometimes because uh, I would throw balls where defensive guys couldn't catch them, but the offensive guy could. He would, you know, they would say, "Hey, leaving you." give me a break, you know, let, let, let my guys touch the ball every now and then, you know? So, uh, you know, and I threw the ball pretty hard and, and I got a reputation for that. Uh, during the middle of the season, Homer came up with an idea of taking me and a few, few other, uh, JV type players and having us practice on a separate field. We had a dedicated coach and then all we did was run about 10 different pass plays, no run plays, from basically a spread offense, you know, nobody in the backfield, which by the way, no one was doing that back then. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we would, I would be in a game, uh, or we would be in a game and, you know, coach Smith would be saying, Hey, you know, be ready, be ready. I, I might put you out there anytime. Well, you know, two games went by and nothing happened. Finally, um, in the Tulane game, my senior or, or my freshman year, uh, we were behind 31 to nothing in the uh, going into the fourth quarter, and he called my name and said, "Okay, we're going to put the uh, we're going to put Lehman in." And the team jokingly called us the bomb squad. Uh, so we went in, and you know, and that was probably one of my most memorable moments is just standing out there uh, outside the huddle, uh, just seeing everything that was going on, just taking in everything that I could. This was my first varsity play. And, um, 
the next 12 plays, we, we, we went 12 straight passes in a row, 12 completions. Um, we would take the ball down to the 8- or 10-yard line, 3-yard line, and then they would pull us out and put the first team back in because we didn't have any running plays to get it in the end zone. Uh, but I did that two times, and we ended up getting beat. I think was, I'm pretty sure the score was like 31 to 14, uh, and and I threw for well over 100 yards in that one quarter. And from that point forward, um, you know that was really the kind of the kickoff of my career. The following week uh, was Air Force, and uh, of course everybody up in the stands you know, wanted to see the bomb squad because we were pretty exciting throwing the ball all over the field. Um, So, you know, Air Force came down the last two minutes. Uh, We were, we were behind by two points and um, we Air Force punted the ball to us deep in our territory. I hadn't played all game and coach said, Hey, we want the bomb squad, bomb squad going in. So we went in, we took the ball all the way down to the, 15-yard line and um, kicked a field goal with just a few seconds left on the clock and won the game. And um, that that was really, uh, you know, one of the greatest moments of uh, my career. I'll, I think I threw a total of five passes in that game, but, you know, was given uh, a lot of accolades for, um, you know, helping the team win. Brent, hope you enjoyed that conversation with a, one of our local products who went on to fame as an outstanding quarterback at Army West Point. And hope you enjoyed those personal insights, not only about the Army-Navy football game, but also about Lehman Hall's Hall of Fame career and insights about the history and tradition of Army football. We'll be right back on the Roger Franken Williams Show with a very colorful former Florida Gator and NFL Atlanta Falcons running back. He actually is a record-setting running back. Harmon Wages will join us when we come back. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the Roger Franklin Williams Show. It's great to be with you today as we are getting solidly into the holiday season. Christmas, of course, is not too far away, and many of our friends and listeners are celebrating Hanukkah as we speak this weekend right now. Wish joyous holiday season for everyone. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Lehman Hall, Army West Point Hall of Fame quarterback, record-setting quarterback. Now we're pleased to be joined in just a moment by one of the most colorful Florida Gator football players um, uh, from the 1960s era. He also became a starting running back with the Atlanta Falcons, and he's the author of the recently published book, Butcher's Boy, which documents his life, career, and career not only in the game of football, but also as one of Atlanta's leading on-air personalities, sports personalities uh, for many years. Of course, speaking about Harmon Wages, before we go to Harmon Wages, I want to remind you that our program and all the programs you hear right here on AM 950 and FM 94.9, The Answer, are supported by Florida Door Solutions. Florida Door Solutions supports our support for the, our free enterprise system and our patriotic programs you hear right here. When you have garage door problems, Remember, Florida Door Solutions has your solution. And now we'll go to be joined. Look forward to being joined by Carmen, former Gator, colorful Gator, and Atlanta Falcons running back Harmon Wages. Harmon, thank you for joining us. Great to catch up with you again. Thank you, Roger. Nice to always be on your show. And thank you for the uh, being with us here, right, right at the anniversary of your historic day in the NFL. And I also want to mention as well, Harmon is the author of the book. Recently released book came out earlier this year, Butcher's Boy, which is an autobiography that documents his life as an adopted son of a butcher in working class Jacksonville, Florida, and of course his career not only in football but in television and media as well. 
But first of all, you know, there's always, Harmon, there's always, you're a great guest because there's always so many things to talk about. But, right, I'd like to start with uh, your, your, the NFL hat trick, um, your outstanding day back on December 7th, 1969, versus the Neuron Saints, where you became only the, you know, for, for only the fourth time since 1969, you scored a touchdown on a run from scrimmage, and it was a long run from scrimmage, on a pass reception, and it was a long pass reception, more of a, a pass and run than, than a reception. And you actually threw a touchdown pass on that game as well. You scored three different ways in the same NFL game in a big victory over the New Orleans Saints. Can you just reflect a little bit on that game with us, please? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, The highlight, Roger, of the game was it was going to be the last game my father would be allowed to see in person because of his heart. And Van Brocklin found out about that. My mother swears she didn't tell him, but I think she did. Because on Wednesday prior to the Saturday game, I mean the Sunday game, December 7th, Norm said, Coach Van Brocklin, today we're putting a game plan in for old Leon. Now, Leon is my daddy's name. It's my middle name. So he put in a game plan built around me, and I threw a 16-yarder to Paul Flatley. I caught an 88-yarder from Bob Berry right in front of Archie Manning, by the way. I mean, right in front of him. I caught it on the 50. He threw it from the 12. And then I ran a 66-yard um, play up the middle, which was called the sucker play because the defensive tackle was chasing the guard when the guard would pull for a sweep. And I couldn't – my job was to come in and cut him, but I couldn't because he was reading the guard's knuckles and he was leaning. So he ran down the line so fast I couldn't cut him. So I told Van Brocklin that I couldn't get to him, so he said, well, just this time give the ball to Harmon. So the guard pulls. Mike Tillman chased the guard. And I went through this hole big enough, big enough for a truck, and went 66 yards for the score. And so after the game, Roger, my father, it's the last game he's going to see. He ever, it's the last game he ever did see in person. And he's buried with the game ball that they gave me. But my daddy comes up to me after the ball game on the field. He looked at me and said, "Sonny boy, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I didn't either." So. It was a great made-for-TV, made-for-movie, made-for-book, soon my book. And uh, it was a great moment for my dad because he was a butcher. And as you know, you mentioned the book. It's called The Butcher's Boy. Stan Alshie wrote it. But our editor was Martha Kavanaugh Hunt. She really rewrote the book, and she edited the book. And Martha did a great job. And so I wanted to mention her name. But it talks about that. And being the butcher's son was a lot of stories because I delivered groceries to everybody's house within a mile area radius on my bicycle delivering groceries, a neighborhood grocery store. I mean, we're talking about a little wooden store. So I knew everybody's business. You know, I knew what was going on. And so when I say that, I mean, I, one day I, I asked my daddy when I came back, and I used the name Smith and Jones. I said, why is Mr. Smith over at Ms. Jones' house at lunchtime every day? <laughs> of course, <laughs> Yeah, you know the reason, but Dad said, "Don't worry about it, and whatever you do, do not tell your mother." So, <laughs> as I got older, I figured it out. You know, that's the way it was. No, very interesting, and I think you know those experiences. You know, at a young age, I think probably led to, or in fact, you were already by this time, charming Harmon. But, but uh, you know, I think as you even talk about uh, you know just that helped the, the 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 colorful personality, if you will, upbeat, positive, uh, friendly personality you have, along with the good looks. Uh, those those experiences really helped to, to to shape that personality. Is that correct? Well, you're kind of say that. Um... I like people. I mean, you grow up in a grocery store in the neighborhood. You know you know everybody, and everybody comes in. I cut yards, too, so I cut everybody's yard. You get to know them, and then you just become one of the family. It's like a big, large family. And so I got to know everybody, and then uh, I guess just because of growing up in a grocery store, and I like people, and I was an only child. So when you're an only child, you don't have brothers and sisters to get to know you have to make your own playmates and you know, you make friends. And so it, you're kind of forced Roger to find friends. And because I was an athlete, I, it helped a little bit playing at the park. We played everything down by the park. And another great story about being an only child is 
you have a chance to think a lot. You're alone. And I used to get on top of the garage at night, and just there were no street lights around. We were outside the city limits. It was just dark. And I used to lay on top of the garage and just stare up at the stars. It just kind of makes you wonder. That's why I'm such an astronomy buff. That's why I study the stars and the moon and the planets and all that, because I saw it when I was young. So during those formative years, when I was like six and seven, to me, getting outside at night and then walking down by the creek and watching frogs, uh, tadpoles turn into frogs and seeing things that an only child does because you don't, you're not, you don't have a lot of brothers and sisters to play with. So you found a creek. So in my book that I, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, uh, Martha and I talked about a lot about the creek because when you watch frogs come, the tadpoles come to frogs and minnows and crawfish do this, and you see a few snakes. And the creek changes every time you have a heavy rain. It's interesting to grow up, and I've always thought that every kid should have a creek. I really do think that. It's because it's something they'll get to remember the rest of their lives. Because every rain, the creek changes its path. Very, very interesting. Thanks, and thanks yeah. for sharing those, those insights about the you're just growing up in, in working class Jacksonville, Florida. Guys, we're speaking with Harmon Wages. Of course, he's known for many reasons, his colorful career with the Florida Gators back in the day as a quarterback, also starting running back in the NFL during the early days of the Atlanta Falcons, also well-known or should be well-known for having one of the most outstanding days in the history of the NFL. In the NFL. A three-touchdown performance, caught a touchdown pass, scored on a long run from scrimmage, and also threw a touchdown pass on December 7th, 1969 versus the New Orleans Saints. Friends, thank you for joining us on the Roger Franklin Williams Show. Have a great day. Welcome back to the Roger Franklin Williams Show. It's great to be with you this afternoon. We hope you're enjoying the show. In just a minute, we'll go back to our conversation with colorful former Florida Gator and Atlanta Falcons running back, record-setting out Atlanta Falcons running back, Charmin Harmon Wages. Before we go to, back to Harmon, of course, I want to remind you that the Roger Franklin Williams Show is supported by our friends over at Miller's Sod Sales. And, of course, the great people at Miller's Sod Sales take great pride in their clean, well-maintained equipment, their quality work and service to their customers, and, of course, their fresh, quality sod. Let Miller Sod Sales green up your life. You can find out more at johnmillertruckingandsodsales.com. That's johnmillertruckingandsodsales.com. Family-owned and operated since 1995. And, of course, we want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Sheeler Auto Repair, Demetrius and Odysseus Virgos. And I want to let you know that if you're looking for an auto repair shop you can trust, I urge you to get over to see Demetrius and Odysseus Virgos at Sheeler Auto Repair. You can trust the guys at Sheeler Auto Repair. In fact, it's where I take my car. I've been taking it there for over 21 years. They're located 1908 South Orange Blossom Trail, Apopkit. Now back to today's conversation with former Florida Gator and Atlanta Falcons running back Harmon Wages. So I want to talk about your 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 Gator career um, because you know I would say you know, and, and of course part of our show is we do an old school Gator series and yeah. of, of all the guys that we that we do and some of them are, are you know I'm talking about all Americans uh, you know etc. Of all the guys that that we have on uh, that. On the old school Gator show, you're probably as well known or well remembered as anybody um, at, for your Gator career, and um, so I want to talk about that. It was a very unusual career, and that you literally only started two games as a quarterback yeah. at Florida. But I want to um, so I talk about that a little bit more in depth. But before we, when we come back from the break, but first of all, you'd mention uh, your coach Norm Van Brocklin. Of course, he's a well known figure. He's a Hall of Famer for his playing career with a. L.A. Rams and Philadelphia Eagles, where he yeah. uh, captured NFL championships as a starting quarterback. But um, 
you know, also known, I guess, as somewhat of a controversial figure or even a figure that's uh, you know not liked in certain circles. Um, certainly an old school coach from ba- from back in the day. Can you speak to your relationship with, with Norm Van Brocklin and what it was like to play for him? Well, yeah, you want me to do that right now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, playing for Van Brocklin, first of all, Norm Hecker was the coach when I went to the Falcons. I wasn't drafted. I just showed up. They didn't draft me. I was a free agent who just I flew myself up there and walked on, and they said, who are you? And I told them, and I had on green shorts and white shoes, and everybody else had on black shoes and red shorts. So I kind of stood out. But then Hecker got fired the third game. Van Brocklin came in, and he immediately changed everything. I mean, he, he came in, and he, suddenly we were like a pro camp. Instead of being there at 9 o'clock to 4 o'clock, we started at 12, we were done at 4, and everything was orderly, orderly and regimented. Van Brocklin was an offensive genius. He was um, He had a short fuse, you might say. He had a temper. But he always, but he was right. He and I even got into a fight once. I mean, a good, a good fight, exchanged blows in the bathroom after we got beat by St. Louis and we lost five starters, including Joe Prophet and Tommy Novus, number one draft choices. But he called me the next morning and he he respected me because I he grabbed me by the shoulder, wrong thing to do, and one thing led to the other. But he loved it. I mean, he loved it. And so I, start, I started the next week. And then we had an understanding because I stood up to him. If you didn't stand up to him, you didn't play. And that turned out to be the way he was. I have a lot of respect for him. I've gotten to know Shelly, his daughter. He adopted three kids, three more kids while he was a head coach. Um, they've all grown up now. But Norm, once you get to know him and he respects you, you know, it's okay. I enjoyed playing for him. I enjoyed playing for him again. And the players that played for him, like he brought three or four down from Minnesota where he was the head coach before they got fired and he had, they hired Bud Grant. But he brought a lot of Minnesota players down. Lonnie Warwick, Bobby Lee, uh, Bob Berry, Leon. There was just a bunch of them. So anyway, that was Norm Van Brocklin. But it was a pleasure playing for him and I miss him. I really do. A great story and thank you for, for sharing your, your personal accounts. And I see it, it Harmon, as you were speaking, I, you know, I think it's pretty well documented. It's uh, you know pretty famous that uh, you know, Nor- you know, Coach Fran Brocklin and Fran Tarkin had clashed dramatically uh, when they were both with the Minnesota Vikings, even yeah, to the they point did. where Fran got him fired in Minnesota. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, where Tarkenton would, yeah, refused to even play for him apparently. But so anyway, my point was, I was going to say, um, maybe you should have you should have told Fran Tarkenton, hey, you just you just need to you need to, you need to get in a fight with Van Brocklin. <laughs> maybe, well, what, what maybe, that would, maybe that would maybe that would solve things. Well, it might have. Fran, uh, being the quarterback he was, he went to management and said it's either me or him, and so he got him fired. So whenever we played the job, whenever we played Fran again, Atlanta. And Van Brocklin was the coach. He talked to Marion Campbell, the defensive head coach, said, I want a piece of Fran. You blitz him to death. You blitz him, you get him. I want him down. <laughs> <laughs> I, Lana, I mean, if you went after Fran and you got him, Van Brocklin loved you. <laughs> he hated him with a passion. Great, great stories. In fact, we'll just skip that break, and we we do have time for to hear about the Harmon's career with the Florida Gators. And guys, okay. you listen to talking old school. Right now, we're speaking with Harmon Wages, one of the most colorful Florida Gators uh, from back in the day. Also, starting running back with Atlanta Falcons in the early days of the Falcons. Whereas, as you're hearing, he played for coaching for the legendary Norm Van Brocklin, uh, legendary for various reasons. And where on December seventh, nineteen sixty nine, he performed what is known as the NFL hat trick and one of only four men to do it since nineteen sixty nine where he scored touchdowns on a 88-yard touchdown reception, a 60-plus-yard touchdown run, and actually even threw a touchdown pass on a halfback option in that in one game. Now, Harmon, I'd just like to kind of paint the picture for you know the, the guys that may that you know they're not old school guys that might be listening or may not be Gator fans, but as I said, you know even to this day you're one of the more well-known players from back in the in the 1960s era, which I think is somewhat maybe even ironic because as you've shared with us, you 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 know, through your junior season 
uh, you were a highly touted, I mean, highly recruited, very talented quarterback coming out of Jacksonville Lee High School, Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville. But you, you got stuck playing behind Steve Spurrier um, his senior year um, when he won the Heisman Trophy. You were a junior. And then, uh, you know, in the sense of the heir apparent to the quarterback position, but, you know, due to a variety of factors, uh, you know, in, including injuries, you ended up only starting two games your senior yeah. year, one of which was you led the team to a, a, a victory over Kentucky um, and had great stats in a late season game. Um, but um, but also along the way, you also were featured in the gate, the very first Gatorade commercials, um, which was, of course, created on the University of Florida campus back when you were there. Uh, can you just uh, you know, give, share a little bit about uh, your, your reflections on your, your career as a Gator? And I, and I think that's okay. Um, and you were also well known in those days as, uh, as Charmin Harmon wages. Well, you know, Van Brocklin, uh, he, he's the one that gave me that name because he said it rhymed. <laughs> but anyway, I went to Florida because I always wanted to be a Gator. I lived in Jacksonville. It's 69 miles you know, up north from Gainesville in the center of the state. I wanted to be a Gator. I knew Spurrier was there. I knew that if I went down there, I might not play right away, but I thought somehow I'd play. As a freshman, you can't play because the freshman couldn't play in those days. Then as a sophomore, Steve had had a great sophomore, had a sophomore. He had a great sophomore year. So when he was a junior, I was a sophomore. He had already established himself. So they tried to play me at running back, Roger, which I could have done, but we had a guy named Larry Smith who was better than me too at running back. And we couldn't move any fullback, which they tried because Gray McKeel from Lakeland was an All-American blocker. So I was cast where I didn't have a prayer to play. And so then my senior year, after I'd gone to boot camp with the Army for, for, in the ROTC, I came back in great shape. And the senior year was going to be my year. But then a freshman fell on my leg and cracked my ankle. And that was it. And I was out into the eighth game of the year. And I wasn't going to play, but Rince got hurt. Ekdahl broke his leg. So they put me in against Kentucky, and I had, a, I had the game of my life. When I threw a couple and ran a couple, and we beat Kentucky. But then uh, I didn't play again until the second half of the Miami game. So I didn't play a lot in college because of injuries and because of Spurrier. But Spurrier was better than me. He was. Um, after that, I was a sophomore. And then Gray's, he's not going to play a sophomore. He's, he's going to play a sophomore like Ekdahl before he plays a senior like me. He's going to be gone. So my timing was just bad. I got hurt, and then I was when I was a senior and I was healthy, I sprained my ankle bad. Ekdahl came in, and I could never replace him. He was better. So I didn't play, so I went to the training camp with the Falcons and just showed up. They didn't know who I was, didn't even have a clue who I was because I flew myself up there on Southern Airways. And the rest is history. I got lucky. And for a change of venue here, everybody else got hurt, not me. In camp, the running backs got hurt. By the time they moved me to running back, I'd already been a quarterback, and you know, you don't hit quarterbacks. So I was healthy enough, and they moved me to running back. I'm healthy, and I got a chance to play, and the rest is history. Oh, it's an amazing story and a, a very, very unique story. And um, yeah, and and I'm um, you know glad. Thank you for for sharing that perspective. And yeah, I'm glad that you know, you you all all the breaks went against you when you were with the Gators, but then you know, it seemed to break the other way for you for you know when you got with the Falcons, which is which is great. Well, as my dear departed and my loving religious mother said, God works in strange ways. <laughs> before, That's my mama. Before before you go, I I do want to also. Um, ask you about wearing number five because you know back in the oh, guys yeah. remember your career you were number five which back in those days there were very very few uh, single digit numbers in the NFL and then uh, okay. actually Paul Horning had worn it very famously uh, during his Hall of Fame career with the Green Bay Packers and um, yeah I, I even even back in those days uh, and that was back before Google you couldn't Google stuff to get information uh, first of all me and many many others legions of Gator fans always wondered well gee how did how did Harmon our, our 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 quarterback you know backup quarterback emerge as a starting running back in the NFL okay. and then second how did he get number five so can you share the story uh, about number five sure it's a great story I'm a rookie at Falcon training camp rookies you have to be in 30 minutes earlier than the veterans. But the veterans are drinking a lot more beer on Wednesday night, 
so they would make me drive them home because they didn't want to be driving. So I'd come in. I'm late the first two nights of my rookie year. Lou Carpenter, my coach with the Falcons, was Paul Horning's roommate at Green Bay. And he said, are you crazy? You're a rookie? You're a freshman? Or you're no good? Chances of making the team are almost nil. You're coming in late after curfew. Are you out of your mind? So when I explained the situation to him, Lou, who was Paul Horning's roommate, as I said, said to me, you know, you remind me of my my roommate, Paul Horning, off the field. You don't remind me of anything like him on the field. <laughs> but off the field, he emphasized that. You remind me of Paul Horning. So I'll tell you what I'll do. If you make the team, I'll give you number five. So the last cut down to 40 players, I came in and I peeked around the corner to see if I'd even made the team. And hanging in my locker was number five. Paul Horning's roommate, Lou Carpenter, at Green Bay, his roommate, player, was a coach with the Falcons. That's what Norm Hecker brought his whole staff with him from Green Bay to coach the Falcons in their first year. And so I reminded him of Paul Horning, as he said, off the field. That's how I got number five. Awesome story. <laughs> thanks, thanks for sharing yeah. with us on Talking Old School. Harmon, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks for sparing some time, especially on this historic anniversary for you. Yeah, and, thanks, Roger. Thank you. And I encourage everybody to get the book, Butcher's Boy. I have it. In fact, I've got a signed copy. Thank you, Harmon. And it's a wonderful book from a lot of different perspectives. And we haven't even talked about Harmon's career in the television business, which, of course, we'll look forward to doing maybe the next time he's on. And we haven't yeah, even we talked. Have, that's a good story, too. That was terrible at first. We haven't even talked I, about. I even stopped. I even stopped. I know I'm bad. I know I'm terrible. And I can hear you laughing. But stick with me because I can't get worse. <laughs> <laughs> And we haven't even talked about his status as the uh, most eligible bachelor in Atlanta back in the day. So anyway, we'll have to save those for next time. (laughs) Harmon, thank you for joining us. Great to catch up with you. Oh, yeah, please call Roger anytime. Guys, hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We'll close once again with some old school wisdom, this time from Anonymous Source. Be the reason someone feels welcomed, loved, heard, seen, and supported today. Guys, have a great night. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.